1: Welcome into Chichet Money. My name is Brett Schaefer and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. Today is our Tuesday not so deep dive episode where we analyze one stock by covering its business model, ownership, financials, basically everything you'd want to cover to get introduced to a company. After going through this episode, we hope you get a better perspective on the company we are covering today. If you have not heard of it before, this will probably, hopefully be a very insightful episode. But as we said last week on the PayPal one, if you know this company extremely well, I doubt it is going to be adding anything extra, adding any, uh, you know, little sort of nuanced stuff here. This is really about getting the core overview, the core um, context for why someone might invest or might not invest in the company. These shows go uh, are on every Tuesday. And you can watch or listen wherever you want. We have YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Just search Chit Chat Money. And we're going to reference maybe some graphics, maybe some charts. Actually, full disclosure, I have not made the charts yet, but they will be out by Tuesday uh, for this episode. If you want to get access to those, it is for free at our newsletter on Substack. You can search Chit Chat Money or hit the link in the show notes. It's a great way to accompany. This uh this episode. All right, today we are covering Shift for Payments, something that isn't covered that much, I would say, but is a fairly big business went public. What three years ago now, Ryan? And unless you get all you know into all that, why don't you talk about what they do, why they are maybe different or maybe the same as a lot of these other payments companies and their history
0: yeah and I'm uh I'm doing great Brett thanks for asking but the uh <laughs> we I feel like we never have you know the the casual start we just get right into it but yeah shift Four. I, I don't I don't think it's a company a lot of people are familiar with they are similar to PayPal in the way that they are kind of a hodgepodge of different payment solutions stitched together so today shift four is an end to end payments processor for mostly enterprise clients, but they've gotten there through a number of acquisitions. They weren't previously end to end. So I'll talk about what that is in a second. Um, but when, when I'm talking enterprise customers, I'm talking like Caesars resorts, uh, Hilton Levi's stadium, the big restaurant change, Applebee's, stuff like that. Um, And so historically, Shift4 has focused on being the payments gateway. And if you want to be super confused, I recommend reading the 10K because it provides very little context on what a lot of these uh, payments terms mean. But the gateway, I I had to take a lot of time to research this,
1: but- Uh, Hey, Investopedia has a good one, right? I'm sure you read that, right? I didn't read that one. But, they have a good definition for a lot of these things. So if anyone is confused, i definitely check out Investopedia for a lot of these definitions.
0: All right. They uh, basically, when you think about the gateway, that means when someone pays, let say, let's use that giant resort, shift forward, collect the payment data, they'd encrypt it, tokenize it, then send it to the merchant acquirer. That is the lower value. In terms of what they're actually paid that's the lower value part of the transaction transaction process however um yeah you know, i think shift four would argue that it's a higher value but for some reason they just don't get uh paid as much for that part however because so i guess let me use um there's a quote from uh a write-up or a blog called scuttle blurb they talk about um shift for payments a little bit and i think he gives a really good example he says so the payments gateway for say a casino resort is embedded in dozens of software systems from the oracle owned point of sales used by the restaurant to the Microsoft Dynamics point of sales used by the gift shop or spa, it creates a token that updates the original payment authorization as a guest transacts at different venues inside the property so they can get a single bill at the end of their stay and delivers to the casino resort a consolidated reconciliation of transaction activity across all their software systems. So it's really kind of helping the, that's why I say the enterprise clients, where they have a lot of different kind of uh both types of transactions, different businesses within a business kind of thing. Um, However, in a transaction, as I kind of mentioned earlier, much of the value for the intermediaries is accrued to the merchant acquirers whose responsibility it is to basically process and settle the payments. These often include companies like Adyen, Stripe, JP Morgan, I think First Data is another big one. Um,
1: We'll get to that. Yeah.
0: In the industry. And, and, and yeah, some others, but because shift four has acquired a number of different gateways, they are now able to offer their big customers merchant acquiring services as well. And so don't ask me how, but apparently because they were able to stitch together these different gateways, um, They can kind of work backwards in the value chain and also do the merchant acquiring services which is like if you're doing end to end so if you're doing the gateway and the merchant acquiring services it's four times the gross profit apparently as opposed to just doing the gateway services um so this is really what they're in the process of right now is trying to upsell a lot of their clients to be the merchant so that they can do the merchant acquiring services as well um this is what they call that end-to-end payments processing from collecting payment data all the way to settling this conversion from gateway to end to end it obviously drastically improves the revenue they get from their customers the other thing i'll say here is shift4 is able to attract enterprise clients better than a lot of these other payments processors because they have more than um apparently 500 different in integrations with a whole bunch of different kinds of legacy software solutions that these big complex organizations might use. So they've got, you know, if you're at Caesars, there's obviously it's a big resort. There's people, you know, whether you're at the pool bar, whether you're checking out or or cashing in some uh, whether you're at the ATM or something for chips, you know, getting food at a restaurant, there's a whole bunch of different softwares that are, that are used. And so because they're able to plug in to all these different legacy software solutions, um, It allows them to kind of piece together um those different systems and provide value for the the larger enterprises i guess i have a visualization here um i know that probably pisses people off that listen to the show purely but um it's just it shows the kind of different transactions a big resort would have um and how i guess shift four is kind of the at the center of all that so That's the basics of the business. They often try to, when it comes to new customers, they'll try to upsell or sell by starting with their SkyTab point of sale system, which they recently introduced. This is their newest, sleekest point of sales, physical hardware um, product. And it's been kind of a big point of focus, I think, from management. But really, yeah, the, the, the goal here is to provide those merchant acquiring and gateway services for huge enterprise customers. Is that a good lay of the
1: land? I think so. Yeah, they're at the end of the day, they're just processing payments and now they're trying to do more of it. The end to end makes sense i think any listener will understand this even if you don't understand what merchant acquiring is and all the back process of that i don't think really many investors do and i don't think it's necessary basically they're taking more of the burden they're doing everything for the payment process except for you know it's not as strong or it's not as vertically integrated as say an american express uh who is issuing the card but they're basically doing everything but being visa mastercard american express or discover and issuing the card or the ability to pay so everything besides that i think
0: all right let's talk about the history real quick so jared Isaacman started what would eventually become shift 4 they've changed the name four different times um i don't know i don't really know what it, sometimes i think that's a red flag but when it's this is a bad name i gotta say terrible name shift Four payments yeah i, I would not ex- be surprised with a f- fifth name change some point in the future but um he started the business in 1999 when he was 16 years old. Apparently, he dropped out of high school. He was working at some uh, some payments company and decided there was an easier way to do this. Wanted to do it himself, so he was 16. Started in his parents' basement. From what I understand, that the, I guess he's you know he's a really bright individual and kind of was bright from a young age. Initially, the company was called United Bank Card. He said he named it that because he wanted to make it sound more professional because they don't want to you know they don't he didn't want customers to figure out oh it's just some 16 year old kid running this um and its primary business was reselling really uh payments processing of another company and i think the reason that he succeeded with it was apparently uh back then merchants that were trying to integrate new payments processors were It was like this long laborious process you would have to put in this application it would take a long time and it would take so long to have it up and running he was able to get a lot of these systems set up in a day and just really have really good customer service for their um for the different merchants and then on top of it i think he just undercut or he gave really generous revenue sharing agreements to uh additional vendors so like uh software vendors that you know you might go to the kind of people that I think Shift4 goes to today. Um we will talk about that in a second but that's really the genesis and then during those first 10ish years they partnered with a lot of different software vendors and then in 2008 they launched Harbor Touch. Harbor Touch was uh really a point of sale system designed for small retailers and restaurants. This was kind of their introduction to the point of sales business and then like I said it's been this just constant onslaught of acquisitions. So between 2014 and 2017, um, they acquired a number of other payments processors, including the business that uh, Jared Isaacman worked for before he started Shift4 payments. Then in 2018, they acquired Shift4. In 2020, they acquired MerchantLink. Apparently, those two combined kind of power the whole merchant acquiring portion of the business as well. Um, And they've since also acquired just... I think probably like four or five different businesses since like 2021, um, which some of them have, have gone on to kind of drive results for the business. But I think a lot of them kind of get swept under the rug. I think there was one that was like ways to pay nonprofits via crypto that isn't really talked about much anymore.
1: Hey, no, they mentioned it on the conference call, uh, but i think yeah that was what a hundred million dollar deal and probably just a hundred million dollars lit on fire
0: and i mean the other part is
1: i understand like
0: um off it's hard to talk about these individually later on if you're the management team because they tend to get pieced together with other companies to offer a single product and so it gets integrated in um i know SkyTab, which is their current point of sale system that they're selling, was like a combination of four different restaurant uh, payments processing slash analytics businesses. So it, if it sounds convoluted and complex, it is. I, I imagine if you're in parts of the organization, it probably sounds pretty complex as well. Um, but they joined the public markets in June of 2020. They raised $345 million during their IPO. Um been a bit of a wild ride since I think at kind of the height of the twenty twenty one mania let me check I think they got up to near hundred dollars the stock did let me check real quick yeah, so it got just over hundred dollars in april of twenty twenty one has it dropped all the way down to thirty dollars kind of in June of last year and has since doubled so it's I mean it's up from its i p o but uh kind of down from its highs. So it's been a bit of a wild ride.
1: Yep. And what do I got here? Oh, I don't know. Why are we, we're being really bad with our heart tech today. Yeah. Today, uh, using my little dynamic valuation thing, I have a share price of $64, but let me move right into industry and competition. Going through shift fours industry size is very difficult. One, they keep acquiring businesses 2 They're expanding to different international markets and three, there is not very reliable data or really there is a lot of estimates out there about payments tam and stuff like that and they're all wildly different so the one way i like to do it or the one way i decided to do it for shift four this time is to kind of back through a payment volume opportunity and remember when i talk about payment volume this is they're going to earn a take rate on this revenue, or excuse me, on this payment volume. Generally, that is going to be their revenue, and then after that, they have fees that they pay to the other people, like the card issuers, Visa and Mastercard, etc. But either way, I kind of wanted to look at Visa's uh, payments volume in 2022, and then take their market share and go for a global TAM, and then maybe we can estimate how much of that opportunity Shift Four is going after. So. In 2022, Visa did $11.6 trillion in payments volume. They have approximately 40% global market share. So that turns into $29 trillion in international cashless payments every year, at least in 2022. And it's kind of, I guess it's not kind of, it is steadily growing each year. In reality though, shift fours opportunity is going to be much lower than this probably significantly lower than 10 trillion dollars in payment volume because one they're not in every market and two they're not going after every vertical so if we look at you know hotels restaurants all the stuff that they're doing still going to be sizable payments volume but for example they're not really going to have a big presence in online payments at, say, a Shopify-based store. Even though they have a competitor to that, it is extremely small, and I doubt they're going to make a big inroad there. Second, you're not going to be on somewhere like Amazon, which is processing a ton of payment volume as well. So, yeah, the market opportunity is big, but it's not going to be as big, maybe, as people expect. And when you're going after this volume, yeah, there is a bit of you know blue ocean opportunity, right? but a lot of the time you had to compete against an existing offering that is already processing this payment. So I think that makes the industry highly competitive and it's something I think investors should note for reference. Shift four did about $71 billion in end to end payments volume in 2022 and end to end means when they are the merchant acquirer. Correct. Right. That's it's hard because they use all these different definitions. So they, they,
0: uh, so it's 71 billion in end-to-end payments, but I think they have another $150 billion in payments that they process that isn't end-to-end, but the take rate on that is so much smaller. So uh, I don't know. They, they didn't really give that out. I, they didn't give one consolidated GPV number. And I think the reason is because end-to-end is much more meaningful than just general GPV.
1: Yep. End-to-end is more important. Definitely the one to track. And it looks like there is still a big opportunity as they try to upsell their existing merchants. And yes, yeah, $71 billion in end-to-end payment volume. That is, you know, it's a, it's a good player. It's not a giant player in the space, but as I'll get to the competitors here there is a lot of them and they're big and a lot of people I think have heard of them if they know this industry. So first, uh, we actually, we should separate them into two categories. So one are the non-integrated payment processors. This is what they define as their competition. And these non-integrated ones would be chase payment payment tech Pfizer FIS, which, uh, Again, I get confused between Fiserv and FIS because they sound so similar and then global payments. And then there's also integrated payment providers that I believe do either very similar or the exact same process at its core as a, a ship for product. That would be Shopify, Square, Toast, Adyen competitors like that. Again, they're not doing the exact same thing. They might be attacking, attacking different verticals. They might be in different markets. They might be going for more online versus in-person. But in general, the payment process is, again, doing everything except you know, what Visa and MasterCard do and the card issuers, so, okay, the bank. And in the newsletter, I'm going to have an operations map. It pretty much just shows they are in Europe, North America, and Japan, but they plan to expand, as they mentioned in the last conference call, to a lot of different countries. All right, let's go to the maybe the most fun part of this episode, or maybe the most disappointing for me, which is management and ownership. For this section on this episode, I want to hit three topics that I think are very important for any investor that's going to consider Shift 4. One, how Isaacman, who again is the founder, controls this business. Two, the executive incentives. And three, some related party transactions and governance red flags. So first, Shift4 has three classes of common stock, A, B, and C. The B and C shares have 10 to 1 voting rights and Isaacman owns all of the B and C shares, therefore giving him 82% voting power as the as of the latest proxy. So he has full control of this thing. It is a dictatorship and there's no risk of him Losing control anytime soon. it's not like he's down at kind of the fifty percent range or the 40 percent range that would make it so someone could have the potential of mounting a activist campaign. Now, if we look at the compensation and the incentive here, 99 percent of the CEO compensation, which again is Isaacman, is in restricted stock units. The question I have as thirty a thirty two percent owner of the business and now his His economic stake is 32% from my quick calculations uh, versus his 82% voting power. He has 32% ownership of this business with a market cap of $5.4 billion. Does it seem necessary to incentivize him with more RSUs in order to do a good job? I'm curious your thoughts, Ryan. Is this a major red flag when you see this or kind of just a little bit irks you as a potential outside shareholder?
0: I've never understood it. Um, why, when you're a big shareholder like this, you own a huge chunk of the business. It's your, it's basically your business. Your net worth is tied to the uh, share price. Aren't you more? Shouldn't you care more about like the long term value of those shares than getting some grant this year? In right. RSUs, like it just to,
1: it's not going to move the needle for his wealth. It's not going to move the needle for his life.
0: no it, yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me. If, uh,
1: but we, we see this all the time.
0: So I, I, I'm kind of thinking, like, what's my ideal structure? My ideal structure would be something like this, where he owns a huge chunk and he just gets paid, you know,
1: whatever cash that. salary yeah. that's uh, good
0: for that year and uh, good enough for him to live on in the short term and doesn't need to sell stock in order to finance his life.
1: Or you can sell stock, but you can get a Buffett-like salary of a hundred thousand or something like that to make it irrelevant. Because again, I don't really care if you are selling shares to fund your life, as long as you still have a huge, you know, ownership stake in the business. But giving these RSUs does feel a bit greedy and strange. If we look at the other uh, cash bonuses that the other executives can get, they are based on an incentive uh, targets. One is payments volume. Shoot, I should have mentioned, or I should have looked if it's end-to-end payments volume. Either way, they're incentivized to grow their payments volume. They're incentivized on another target to grow their gross revenue less network fees, which I'll probably just call net revenue, which is again the gross revenue. They subtract out the network fees they pay to say Visa and Mastercard and the other the card issuers uh, like you know Bank of America, and then they're also uh, targeting adjusted EBITDA levels. I think. Looking at these three things, it should be no surprise then to see them be a heavy acquirer of other companies and using stock based compensation a lot because I can juice the adjusted EBITDA. And if you acquire a lot of companies, well, that's an easy way to grow your payments volume. Now, there were a lot of strange things I saw when reading the proxy filing and annual report that, from a governance point, either if I was looking at this company, I would want to investigate further. To make sure it was my concerns were, say, you know, maybe misguided, or to say they weren't misguided, and say, yeah, I don't really like this management team and this board and this executive. First, there was a strange note about a multi-billion-dollar payout to a stepsister. Um, never like that. Second, the company pays one million dollars a year to use Isaacman's plane. Just, just to be
0: uh, clear, it, it kind of sounded like you said multi billion dollar payout to the stepsister. Oh, multi million
1: million. Yes, it was like three million dollars. So, not really relevant in the long term, but again, slight, slightly strange. Uh, not something you want to see. A uh, third, Isaacman, again, the founder is on uh, his dad is on the board. And then, fourth for me was this confusing hold co structure where there's a deal. Uh, where all the tax loss carry forwards get paid to an entity called Shift4 LLC, which is not the stock you're actually buying. It is listed in the related party transactions. If you're really interested in this, you can try to analyze the three to four paragraphs of crazy lawyer legal speak that was very confusing. I'm not going to try to spend 10 minutes explaining all this in the dense you know lawyer <laughs> paragraphs, and I probably would get some things wrong anyways. But I never like seeing these things because when I do see that, I get a little confused and I say, wow, why are they doing this? Why do they have this whole co structure? If the capital structure is extremely confusing and opaque, I, I always want to ask why. Like, Why are you doing this? Why are you paying this out? And they have, a, I think, around $400 million in tax loss carry forwards. That could be a good asset for this business, right? But it looks like 85% of that, according to this uh, thing I read, is going to get paid, not to you, but the this LLC thing. Again, could be totally wrong on this, but yeah, generally came away very disappointed in the proxy statement and ownership structure. And it's something that would be a big concern for me because I do not like this dual class stuff where the founder, as Ryan's going to mention later, he is a rocket scientist that goes on missions it's just a lot of uncertainty and it seems like he can do whatever he wants.
0: Yeah. I mean, if it comes to like voting in the interest of the minority shareholders or uh Jared Isaacman where where do you think his dad's going to vote, you know?
1: Yeah, that's also sticky. Yeah. And I think the biggest one for me though was the private plane. They're paying a million dollars a year to use his private plane. And he's the one that's going to be using the plane.
0: Listen, if you take every one of these things independently, they're not the end of the world. Maybe I mean, the tax loss assets, I I don't think we know it intimately enough to to say it's a huge deal. Yeah, it was just something to
1: investigate further. When there's a page and a
0: half of related party transactions, it starts to feel like they're using this as
1: their bank account. Yeah, and you get concerned about that. I also get concerned that nothing's based on a per share metric. Again, especially with a heavy acquirer, they can be, I'll go through some of the math here on how they're really not generating cash right now. But yeah, anything else on that, Ryan, or do we want to move to earnings?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all
1: over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine.
0: Book your stay today at LQ.com. Let's move to earnings. Um, I think the two most important top line figures to pay attention to are, Brett kind of mentioned this, end-to-end network volume and gross revenue minus network fees. Gross revenue minus network fees. I would just think about that as their actual cut, so their revenue, um, because they have to pay out a big chunk too. The issuing banks and the card networks and stuff like that, Um, but the end-to-end volume was seventy-two billion dollars. That was up fifty-three percent year-over-year. They've done a really good job converting um, traditional gateway customer volume to -to end-to-end. So that's been a a big driver of growth for them. So kudos to them on that. And then the gross network minus or gross revenue minus network fees was seven hundred. Basically, their revenue is seven hundred thirty million dollars. A little under. That's up almost 40% from last year. These are all the 2022 numbers. I didn't include Q1 just because it would probably not be that big of a difference. And I wanted to use annual figures. But that year, they also did $290 million in adjusted EBITDA. But frankly, that doesn't mean anything for this business because for one, you X out stock-based comp, you X out acquisition and integration costs, which is fairly meaningful. You X they had a network outage that they're currently paying back um a lot of the customers for. So you X that out. You X out basically all the there's interest expense that well, I'll talk about the balance sheet here in a second. And you know they're getting into hardware, there's some depreciation there as well. So there's a lot of expenses that are X'd out. And adjusted EBITDA that are really true, meaningful costs for this business. um Free cash flow has been a little hard to come by for them, which it's always it's never exciting to see. But if you exclude all the acquisition costs, which you shouldn't, but maybe they stopped. Let's say they stopped acquiring on a go-forward basis, and you xed out the settlement timing because apparently I think that's like a working capital dynamic. About forty-six percent of their EBITDA. Would convert to free cash flow, so their theoretical kind of free cash flow here, I'd call it 133 million dollars for 2022. That's about 18 percent free cash flow margins on that on that gross revenue figure that I used. Uh, if you use like the total revenue, it's going to be significantly less. But the that's kind of the way to think about it. It's worth noting though that right now they're acquiring a lot of their third party distributors. So, and the third party distributors, I've worked at something like this before. It's basically just this middleman software vendor that you go through. I think they're called ISOs on the, uh, on the, on the 10 K, um, they're buying a lot of them, which I do find a little bit weird. And there's a sort of a popular short report that came out recently that, uh, thought this was maybe malevolent or malicious. And the reason they think we'll
1: we'll we'll link to that in the show notes for anyone that maybe owns the stock.
0: Yeah. The reason that they think that is because the cost of good a big chunk of the costs for them and the cost of goods sold, it's not the biggest chunk, is the payments out to their distributors for you know uh you know selling through to the clients. The if they buy them that no longer shows up in the cost of goods sold and you can reposition that into the cash flow statement. It, it, there's a line item that says residual commission buyouts um under the investment investing portion of the cash flow statement. So it's now no longer looked at as a cost of goods sold expense. Earnings would look a lot worse, gap earnings, if they didn't do that, if they didn't acquire, not to mention it boosts adjusted EBITDA, which boosts their payouts for for management. So it's j- some red flags there. The, if you're looking at this as a potential investor here, I would say maybe they they can get to kind of 20% free cash flow margins on that gross revenue figure. That's maybe something I would use and you obviously have to believe in the, the ability to convert more customers to end-to-end volumes.
1: Here's another thing I think this is an example of is companies will give out their own earnings metrics. Companies will give out their own free cash flow definition. It's generally the same. Operating cash flow minus CapEx. My thought is that the best way to go about it is you decide when you read the cash flow statement what your definition of free cash flow would be for this business. And I think with shift four, you got to be a little bit unique given those, what's that, either the financing or investing, whatever that one is below operating cash flow, that little, that segment. There's a lot of stuff in there that is, you know, it's significant. Cost for them.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. Cause my gut reaction is to say like they're massaging earnings. They're fine. They're doing some financial engineering to get a better payout to kind of make it look better, to kind of prop up the stock. It might not, that might not be the truth. They, They may have really good rationale for acquiring their distributors, they may have good rationale for all the acquisitions they've made. Um, maybe there's they think that free cash flow can get closer and closer to being similar to adjusted EBITDA
1: but for the if time it's being, similar if it's similar just use free cash flow then that's my always that's always my thought <laughs> right then why are we ever even using adjusted EBITDA
0: yeah so I don't know it's I guess the earnings were a little frustrating to go through but it, it is a business who has been growing fast on the top line that's worth noting
1: for sure yeah yeah
0: All right, balance sheet. Let's go through this. They have $744 million in cash and cash equivalents. 56 million in long-term investments in securities. I believe a big chunk of that is SpaceX. I, I don't know how to think about this because they got SpaceX as a customer. And I think at a similar time, they bought their stock. So if you got to buy stock in every company to make them your customer, that might be concerning. But
1: the- What are they? What payments is, consumer payments is-
0: Starlink oh Starlink yeah forgot about that yeah. I think it might be broken out independently but uh and I I remember seeing that they bought some shares I'm not sure if it's there may be some other uh equities in there in the long-term investments um but it's small it's not huge and I mean Starlink you know first of all I am pretty sure the valuation on those shares has gone up and the Starlink's probably not a bad customer to have um so call it 800 million dollars in cash and investments liability side of thing uh on the liability side of the balance sheet they do have 1.74 billion dollars in true debt that was all issued when rates were incredibly low so props to them they have a 2025 convertible note a 2027 convertible note and a 2026 senior note that's a fixed rate the convertibles both uh the most the closest one the 2025 which i think uh comes due in just about 2 years converts at $80 and 48 cents today. It's what do you say it is $64 somewhere around there. Yep. So it needs some stock improvement to get there. Um, if not, it, it's no interest basically. I think they have an effective, effective interest rate on here of like 0.5%, but really it's really low interest. Um, and the 2027 is a $123 conversion price with, Less than one percent interest, the senior notes are basically five percent interest all in all they're not paying a lot of interest on this, but it is a if if their adjusted EBITDA figure is overstated here, they it's a pretty hefty leverage ratio because their their net debt is around i think eight hundred million call it eight hundred and nine hundred million dollars. And they're doing—they're quoted adjusted EBITDA is 290 million, so it would be a net debt to adjusted EBITDA figure of three times. But if if some of that's overstated, you could be looking at maybe five times uh, net leverage ratio. Not to mention, um, you know, if the cash flow isn't growing or some of the cash flow isn't kind of real here, they're going to be paying a lot of that debt down over these next couple of years, especially if it doesn't convert. Or worse, they might be rolling that debt and having to get new acquire new senior notes or something at an even higher uh, interest rate, which I think would be a bad scenario for this business.
1: Yeah. All right. Good detail there. Uh, I think that was very thorough. Hopefully we'll, you know, hopefully I think the listeners got some good detail there, uh, but a uh, uh, lot of numbers, a lot we of throw, numbers. We throw too lot, many numbers lot of out. Numbers. So if you get confused, we're going to get to the We're going to get to the, the discussion here shortly. Let me just um, say,
0: okay, I'll say it this way. Growing fast. Profitability is eh. We don't know necessarily what it really looks like on a steady state basis and the balance sheet is not the best
1: yeah good summary uh yeah let me get to valuation very quick market cap about 5.4 billion add on that net debt we had an ev of about 6.3 billion by my count ev to net revenue or actually excuse me i'm gonna use two earnings multiples here or one's not an earnings multiple but one i think is a multiple that Can give you some context on this business first one is going to be ev to net revenue which i'm saying net revenue is that gross revenue less network fees like we talked about before right now based on the 2022 numbers they are trading at 8.7 times revenue and then if you look at operating income which again we did talk about the confusing earnings but i just use standard operating income That is fairly low. You could probably guess they're going to get some leverage there, but again, they're not right now. And they're currently trading at 66 times that number. So maybe that would be closer to 30 to 40 if they weren't investing for the, you know, for growth and they weren't doing all these things and they were showing their true unit economics and kind of increasing their margins to what they could be, um, over the long term but that's still an expensive multiple given that they are trading at about 8.7 times their true revenue figure on the other hand they are growing at about 30 to 40 percent a year so this could come down rather quickly but this is definitely not one of those stocks at least in the payment space or the software space that we've seen over the last few years and yeah I guess when it was closer to 30 dollars it might have been cheaper but it's not one of these where We've seen it just totally bombed out and having these valuations compressed to sales ratios down below five. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized.
0: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Let's go to anecdotal evidence. Ryan, what do you think about this business? I know we all interact with these type of products constantly. And my thought is a lot of these are commodities and they look the exact same. I can never tell the difference between any of these things except for when they have the name on the side, but I'm curious what you think.
0: Well, um, I guess on the product side, I maybe have interfaced with it without knowing, but I don't. I think the proof is in the pudding with them being able to upsell to the um, to their merchant acquiring services. They they obviously have some really notable customers, some big customers, and it sounds like it would be very difficult to replace especially since customers of that size, that's probably not their first priority. Um, But I don't really like companies where it feels kind of like a patchwork of different businesses. And the other thing I don't, I'm not a huge fan of serial acquirers, especially ones that like care a lot about adjusted EBITDA because they're constantly they they have a lot of acquisition and integration expenses that they continue to back out. So if that's like on an ongoing basis, that's it. Just feels like you're constantly playing with fake cash flow, or- and
1: you're going to incentivize to grow the fake numbers that actually aren't creating shareholder value. If they were incentivized in the proxy statement on free cash flow per share, maybe I'm okay with it, but they're not.
0: Yeah, so. I don't know. I sometimes get turned off by businesses that are constantly buying, or constantly buying new ones, new companies. Especially if it doesn't, if it feels unrelated, like it feels like you're just moving into a new market. It, it's hard to keep up with.
1: Hundred percent. And. I think, as an example here, we've looked at Adyen for a long time. We have it on our watch list. We did an interview with mostly borrowed ideas last year. Maybe that was two years ago. Hard to remember at this point, but either way, still relevant for that business. Scuttleblur's covered them a lot. They're covered all the time. And we, again, like I said, we looked at them and so me, looking at Adyen, who has no acquisitions, the acquisition strategy in payments, I think is a flawed long-term approach because you, like they say, have to duct tape things together and Adyen can get better performance than a lot of these companies. So I think at its core, when you have something like, and again, this is just my anecdotal opinion because I don't work in payments and stuff like that. The, the end product that people pay with is a commodity. And now you can add on switching costs. You can add on... um. All these things on top of it to be a merchant acquire but if you do it through acquisitions it's much more likely i think that you're not going to have the success rate remember they talked about that that network that was off or whatever you mentioned earlier you're not going to have the authorization rates you're not going to have all the key performance indicators that these merchants care about be as good as someone like Adyen, or you're going to have a much harder hill to climb because you're trying to you know combine all these products together and make them work seamlessly and that's just very difficult compared to doing it you know slower and from scratch all right future growth opportunities ryan these ones are tough i i really have a tough time here because they acquire stuff and then basically grow your payments volume and grow international but what do you think here what's what is how does shift for payments grow what's the biggest opportunity in your mind
0: Yeah. It was kind of tough to pick an avenue here. Uh, They recently acquired a company called Venue Next, which is apparently a white label solution that stadiums can adopt where people can pay from anywhere. They can have stuff delivered to their seat. They can have, uh, I think they can pay with the app at the point of sales system. Um, Sounds like that's potentially an easy upsell for them. They're very, they are a very good sales organization and they've been acquiring a lot of uh big stadium since then since that acquisition so it seems like it's working out for him that's one the other one is this is kind of the most obvious one it's what everyone's tracking is upselling to the merchant acquiring services for their existing customers and and new customers but scuttleblurb kind of he raises this interesting point which is it's going to take time so he says there are several challenges Uh, to converting gateway-only sellers to -to end-to-end processing. First, large merchants are busy managing the complexities of their core business and consolidating gateway functions with merchant acquiring is understandably the last thing on their minds. Second, merchants will often take Shift4's consolidation proposal to their existing acquirers who will respond by cutting processing fees to keep the business. Third, the large enterprises that Shift4 caters to will often have banking relationships bundled with their merchant acquiring. So, it's not as easy to upsell as it might sound just because they have a foot in the door with the gateway processing. They might not be the most important software vendor to these huge complex organizations. So it'll take some time. They've done a good job so far, but you know maybe some of the low-hanging fruit might be picked off already.
1: Yep, and mine's going to be going after these large entertainment venues again. They talk about stadiums. They talk about big entertainment complexes. They talk about you know entertainment festivals you know for example i guess big ones like music festivals stuff like that and they also talk about the chance to move internationally for reference like i mentioned earlier they're only in north america europe and japan there are a lot of other markets to go after they talked about latin america i wouldn't be surprised if they made an acquisition down there for a payments processor when i've down there and uh they have basically the same stuff as over here except it's just a different company you know, you know something like a square, a clover, a toast, whatever. It's essentially the same, but they could easily acquire their weight into that uh, market. Given that this is the case, given they've had a lot of success as a sales organization, and they can still upsell here, I would not be surprised if they keep growing net revenue at a double digit rate for the next five years. What do you think, Ryan? Does that seem like a reasonable bet to make?
0: yeah and they've done a good job expanding into different verticals and growing within those verticals so I think the proof's in the pudding there when it comes to just the overall revenue growth rate that that's really my highlight
1: here is the
0: the business is growing fast so that can we've talked about some of the problems maybe with the organization or with shift four growth can alleviate some of that especially if your end clients are growing themselves like i guess that's something we haven't even talked about if these big enterprise businesses are are growing the volumes and you're just a take rate that's that's fantastic the low lights though maybe the name that's one they it's they should
1: fix the name (laughs) oh the name of the company i thought you meant the name of the ceo um
0: no just the (laughs) the name of the company is a little funny but um Okay, I'll try to con- consolidate all this down to one because it's, it's all pretty much governance related. But it, it, Jared Isaacman, very bright guy. That's very, that's clear. He's a rocket scientist. He started a payments organization when he was 16 years old. I mean, it, it, clearly a kind of a wonderkind type of person. He feels a little pumpy to me.
1: A little musky, I gotta say. A little musky. Yes,
0: yes in december of last year when the stock price was down a lot from its highs first of all there was speculation that he was going to get a margin call he's taken out a margin loan with his shares as collateral but he also said that's that's speculation so he also said publicly he was incredibly frustrated with its pub, with the company's public market valuation and suggests, suggested that he might take the company private For me first of all if you're interested in driving long-term value don't you kind of want a discount you can like constantly buy back your shares you can and you can do so creatively
1: and you're issuing the rsu's you already own a lot of this you're going to increase your ownership stake
0: my concern is that it feels like he's thinking well if the public shareholders aren't going to give us a premium valuation and foot the bill for us what why would i be public it doesn't. He's not thinking about us as partners because it, it, it's like, oh, we're gonna go private if you're not gonna give us a premium valuation. There's no, yeah. And you, then, you don't then what's take. The, you don't, then what's the benefit of being public? It's like you, we're partners, yeah. not just people to foot the bill for you.
1: You don't want a risk of a take under if you bought at sixty and they take you under at forty, even though the stock price was lower at that point. I think that's a it's definitely a big risk for me there yeah
0: the related party transactions as well there was also a material weakness in internal controls that, that CFO, uh,
1: I gotta say that one looked okay, but again, you never you never want to see that
0: yeah the c f o left last year, so there was some management turbo turnover. People also said that maybe he was fired in relation to the internal weakness and stuff, but it also kind of came at a time when they were acquiring a lot of their distributors, which felt like potential earnings massaging going on there. last one he is. He goes up in rockets, so and he's obviously very crucial to this business. Yeah, people uh, missions.
1: People looked at that or told me to look at that. I gotta say, I didn't have time or didn't really care for it. Uh, how much? How many times has he done this? Do you know?
0: I think he only did one mission. It was a SpaceX one. Um, he talks about it a lot. I mean, he's very into rocket science. I, I heard a number of interviews where he's kind of on these like space related podcasts and it seems like a big point of focus for him. He has another company as well that does like pilot training. I, I don't know. It just sounds some, like a distraction some people can to run some people can run multiple organizations. Doesn't it doesn't feel like he's he's deserves the liberty to run a public company while running a bunch of other stuff. Just I think you have to get to a certain level before you can do that. Yeah. And, and maybe sometimes even I'm giving Musk the benefit of the doubt because of the size of Tesla or whatever, but I would say I, I don't like it in general. It feels kind of undeserving for shareholder. Like If I'm a shareholder, I want somebody who's really wholly committed to that business, especially if they own 80% plus the voting power.
1: Agreed. All right, let's keep moving up forward. My highlights, I'd say same as yours on the going after the large venues, they're going to have higher switching costs, so hopefully extremely low churn, and they should hopefully be able to grow over time. Plus, like with PayPal, and like we'll talk about, I think with almost every payments business that we're going to look at this month, which what are the other two, build.com and Visa, I think they would also be within this category. Shift four is inflation proof. As they are a take rate business on payments volume, so I like that. Maybe if you're worried about deflation coming, which would be quite funny if you know <laughs> if that happened generally in 2023, 2024, if kind of inflation kind of went away because that's all we talked about the last two years, that would not be great for this business. But the you know they are inflation proof, which is good, and they seem to have fine unit economics. These businesses do have good gross margins, not great. Remember, you got to take out that network fees. Do not just look at revenue. But yeah, uh, lil- lowlights, governance red flags, we discussed that. The cash flow generation is not what it seems. Ryan went into it. But if you basically take out all the actual cash costs from the, you know, not just CapEx, they have three other, four other categories there. They burned $240 million last year versus the $267 million in positive free cash flow they would define under the operating cash flow. Minus capex definition, and again, that's not xing out SBC. So I don't know if they're actually creating value for shareholders right now. They are burning cash. Second uh or third one, acquisition strategy. don't like that. And then fourth, the unit economics on some of these payment processors and gateways are a lot are not as strong as I think. Some people may think, even though I mentioned that they're they're fine. I think they're not as good as maybe the true costs over time are. So you have one, the high network fees that you have to pay out. Everyone knows about those. But second, you also have to have a lot of customer support still there. You have to have the hardware costs that usually get subsidized or sold at cost to these merchants. And fourth, you have to have a sales staff kind of permanently in there. You have to have a lot of phys- you know, actual employees working with these companies, integrating implementation costs. You have to sell them on it. You have to you know, have support because a lot of these times there's downtime on these. And a lot of times you really do not want anything to go wrong because if you can't process payments, a lot of stuff gets screwed up, especially if you're working, think about it at a stadium concert, wherever. So you got to give your founders RSUs. It's <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's capital I think intensive. <laughs> you know, given, given the long-term, you know, sticky nature of these th- relationships, you'd say that they're probably going to have a positive ROIC, a positive return on invested capital, but I don't think it's as good as some people may make it out to be as maybe some bowls for these payment processors you know the similar ones toast square clover shift four maybe even toss olo in there although olo's slightly different but there's a lot of them out there and i don't like the business as much as i did maybe three four years ago let's keep let's wrap things up here ryan let's go through your bowl and bear case
0: Bowl case they continue to grow end to end volume um they continue to grow new customers and those theoretical kind of margins we talked about are come to fruition that would be i mean if they're doing that and the growth rate is north of you know 15 percent, which seems doable um this could probably work out to a solid return i'll leave it at that
1: and what the you want me to go through mine first so at 8.6 times net revenue, I really think you need to expect that double-digit growth probably at 15% plus on a compound annual growth rate for your net revenue and better margins than people think. So you need margin expansion plus this 15% CAGR on the net revenue. And I think you need smart capital allocation. Yeah, the, you know convertible notes were at a good time. Yeah, they bought back stock at a good time. I think you really need to expect this finance department and the founder, whoever's making the decisions here on the capital allocation front to be very intelligent here because they got to use this highly valued stock correctly i think the expectations on this business are generally high and if you want to own shares well your expectations need to be even higher than the market so yeah i think the big question i have here though and a lot of questions for these digital payment companies in general one, well, this is specifically for Shift4. What happens once they finish the end-to-end conversion with their existing customers? How fast are they going to be growing then? And second, in general, for a lot of these companies, what happens when you know, the quote-unquote war on cash tailwind eventually ends? Is it become a hyper-competitive business? That's my big concern.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm worried too much about TAM. Because there's a lot of these enterprise customers that are available but i I do have some other worries i guess the bear case for me is that the cash flow is really inflated they it's all going to go towards paying down debt over the next couple of years they might have to roll that debt at much higher interest rates i mean the balance sheet is not great if those profits aren't what the company says they are so i don't know there was some validity to some of the points in blue blue orca's short report that give me some pause and it just i'm not smart enough to invest in companies where there's a lot of red flags some people can do it because they know the industry so well they know the product they know what's going on with all those dynamics and they they can look past the red flags. Not for me, like, especially in a space like this, I need someone, a capital allocator who I really trust and I know is gonna take care of me as a minority shareholder.
1: Yeah, and I think that's gonna, I don't need to go through my pair cases. It's basically the same. When we look at red flag businesses or something that might, you know, someone might describe as a shit whatever you wanna describe it, we're looking at stuff that we want, we wanna buy something that might be a deep value investment at three times earnings with a bunch of red flags, not it, nine times revenue i think that sums it up all right more or less interested ryan i think i know the answer to this oh final thoughts before we go
0: yeah i'm less interested i would not be surprised if this continued to grow quickly but i'm gonna miss the boat here because uh, the red flags were a lot for me
1: yeah if they're doing a trillion dollars in end-to-end payment volume By the end of this decade each year you know congratulations to anyone that owns that i think it's possible i think the stock would work but again yeah i'm less interested it's not for me i think this business is in a highly competitive industry they have yellow flags with their governance issues and they traded a steep multiple So why should I have confidence this is a good risk-reward opportunity at these prices? Yeah, maybe at two, three times revenue, You think the margins are going to be good. This would be a great opportunity if you add in those risks because of the red flags, because of the governance issues, because you're riding with a guy that owns this entire thing and goes into the Rockets. But right now, I, I just don't see the opportunity. On the other end, though, if they keep growing, it'll be fine. All right, Ryan, anything else before we go? No, that's it. Okay. Give us a review on Apple or Spotify if you like the show. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Next week, we have bill.com. The week after we have Visa and the week after we're doing Airbnb. So it should be three really fun ones in a row. We'll see you next time.